0: But there is much, much more. You recall that I quoted David Hume when I delivered the lecture on miracles? David Hume said something, and I want to cite David Hume in evidence, because it's a good reason for faith what David Hume has told us. In his essays on natural religion, quote, "...the whole frame of nature bespeaks an intelligent author." And no rational inquirer can, after serious reflection, suspend his belief a moment with regard to the primary principles of genuine theism and religion. Close quote. No intelligent person, no rational inquirer can really pass theism by and the designer and the author of nature. Hume meant what he said. He had his skepticism And he was schizophrenic in his philosophy. He wrote one set of propositions as Hume the skeptic and another set as Hume the deist. But the fact remains that he was settled on this point. In the observation of phenomena around us, rational inquirers come to the belief that design requires designer, that effect demands cause. And that it is rational to look at nature and its products and to say that it is just not an uncaused effect. I think, therefore, that it's good for the Christian to know that miracles are valid evidence and that the miracles of Christ, some of which are duplicated in our own day, are sound evidence to be adduced in support of the Christian message. The prophecy of the Old Testament fulfilled in the New and fulfilled in our own day is an additional evidence and creation itself bespeaks an intelligent author. I would also add something else. When we think of prophecy, we often think of things that took place in the past and that are coming to pass in the future. We forget that in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14... There is such a thing as the gift of prophecy and it's not possessed by Gene Dixon. It's not possessed by the people who talk about having it. It is a supernatural gift of God and when it operates, it is as dynamic a proof of the validity of the Christian message and a reason for faith as anything that can be adduced in human experience. I can give you, fortunately, a case which I documented myself. And one that is not easy to forget. I have a man who takes care of my throat. And he does that because I speak so much that he wonders how my throat survives. And I have to go for checkups regularly so that things don't happen to my throat and I lose my voice. As happened one time in the middle of a lecture, I was vigorously holding forth and I got in the middle of a word and that was the end of the lecture. Because my vocal cords refused to function. That's why I have a good throat doctor. He is an Iranian. He is a man who came to Christ from Islam, one of the most difficult of all religions to convert. And he has a marvelous testimony. He and his wife attend a small church near my home in New Jersey. And he gave me the evidence and provided the verification so that I know it is exactly as I recount it. Visiting his church one night... A missionary spoke soliciting support to go and carry the gospel and to the, to the people that my friend, the doctor, was interested in reaching, the Arabs. He was thrilled by it because this couple with their children wanted to go out to Pakistan and carry the word of God. And Pakistan was open to them. He had wished that it was Iran, but Pakistan would do, praise the Lord. At the end of this particular service, when the preacher finished and was turning to sit down, a man rose in the front of the auditorium and began to speak in an unknown language. And when he finished, another man stood and said, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go to Pakistan. But you shall go to Iran, and I will open the doors for you. There will be much weeping and sorrow, and then there will be great blessing. And we sat down. Well, this missionary was terribly uptight. And the reason he was terribly uptight was he was already booked for Pakistan. So he went down to the Pakistani embassy to get his papers, and the man handed the papers to him when he walked in and said, we can't let you in. And he said, but you just cleared all this. And he said, things have changed. Visa denied He said he folded the papers and walked to the Iranian embassy where you couldn't get in ever. Walked into the window and said, I would like to make out an application for a visa to Iran. And the man said, of course, sir. And what is your purpose? He said, I am a Christian missionary. And the man said, oh, excuse me a moment. And he left the window and went back and back and back. And a few minutes later, came out. He said, just fill out this application, sir. He said, we'll be delighted to welcome you to Iran. This man was in absolute shock. <laughs> almost paralysis at this point. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah thank you very much. <laughs> he took the papers and filled them out. And he went back and told this church and my friend, the doctor, who's a fairly well-off man. The doctor said, Praise the Lord! You're on your way to Iran. I'll help support you. And others immediately saw this was the hand of God. They would support it. They began. He got his support, just like that, to go. Couldn't speak the language. No education in Arabic. Gets on a boat with his family, and he ends up in Iran. He takes a storefront in the middle of Tarahan, and he goes out and mingles with the camel drivers and the people on the street and everybody and his Uncle Harry, excuse me, his Uncle Hussan, (laughs) try to learn the language. Within a year, he's fairly conversant in Arabic and Persian, and he's preaching Jesus Christ in the heart of Iran, this great empire of Zoroaster and of the Persian heritage, and of Muslim teaching. And the people are listening to him. He has 30 or 40 Muslims out for his meetings. He has some Muslims accept Christ as their Savior, which is almost like committing suicide in certain parts of that country. And God is blessing him mightily. And he starts another work in another part of Iran, and God blesses that. And Muslims are starting to get saved. More people are coming to Christ through this man's ministry... In the couple of years that he's in Iran, then the Christian missions have been able to get a hold of in the entire country since they first began trying to get in. God is blessing. So he put the children in the car, his wife, and they took off for their other base. As they were driving, his children kept asking him the question, What's heaven like, Dad? And he kept telling them, and they keep asking more. What's it like to see Jesus? And he'd explain it and then brush them off. All day long riding, the children kept saying this. Now he knows why. Because coming around a curve on those Iranian roads, a car on the wrong side of the road hit him head on. The next thing he remembered was waking up in an Iranian hospital, bandaged from head to foot and his wife next to him. They were barely alive. And two of their children were dead. The ones that were asking the questions. When he found out, he wouldn't tell his wife. But he lay there, and the word of the Lord came back to him from a little church two years before. There will be great weeping and sorrow, and then there will be great blessing. And so he began to praise God for the death of his children. He began to praise God for the sorrow and the agony and the anguish. He began to thank God and glorify God for all that had happened. And the burden lifted from his soul and his wife, without his knowing it, was doing the same thing. And then he went back and conducted a memorial service for his children. Now you have no idea what this is in an Islamic culture. For the father to conduct a service in memorial of the children the father could never do this, it would be too shattering. But here he stood next to the grave of those children, opening the scriptures, and the place was clouded with Muslims who were friends of his, who knew him, who were not believers, and a handful of Muslim Christians. And he opened up the scriptures and began to preach on the glory of death for the Christian. And he began to preach on absence from the body, is at home with the Lord. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, he will live. But whoever lives and believes will never die for all eternity. And he preached the good news that Jesus Christ is a living Savior and that there's victory over the graves of that which is the fruit of your own body. And that audience disintegrated into tears and weeping on their knees coming forward to receive Jesus Christ. You know what they kept saying? This must be the truth. No one can face death and smile. No one can stand over the graves of their children and thank God for it. Jesus of Nazareth must be God's son. And they hugged him and kissed him. Today, you can go to Iran and see the fruit of a 20th century prophecy that began in a little church in Spring Valley, New York. You will see a Bible school in the heart of Iran that has enrolled 5,000 Muslims in a correspondence course on Christianity, the greatest single penetration of Islam in the history of the Christian church. And you will see a radio program that now preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to Iran in their own language. And you will see other mission stations set up over the country. Great weeping and great sorrow, but Muslims all over hearing of this and coming... And he has now more than 300 converts who are out there working for Jesus Christ. They don't care what happens to them. Why? Because he's alive. He is the Son of God. I can document this to the church, the place, the circumstances, the names of the children that were killed, and anything any skeptic on earth says didn't happen. Now I want an answer, and I want it quick from the skeptics. I want to know who was speaking out of the mouth of the person that stood in that little church in Spring Valley. I don't want any equivocations or arguments. I want to know who said, Thus saith the Lord, I will send you to Iran. And there will be weeping, and then there will be great blessing. I want to know who did this. I want to know how one person knew what the other person was saying when one spoke in a language the other one didn't know. And I want to know how you explain what's in Iran right now by some kind of rationalization. I don't want somebody to just stand up and say, these things never happen. The Christian has to stand up and say, these things do happen because the gifts and the calling of God are without revocation. And he still acts today to those who have the faith, the humility, and the willingness to turn and look in the direction of the cross and the Christ who came down from it through the empty tomb and who lives that death itself may one day die. God who lives and who performs and who is here is his own best testimony and he's giving it all across this earth and will continue to give it. Till Jesus Christ comes again. Yes, there are miracles. There is an intelligent author of creation. And there is prophecy in the charisma and the power of God. And God is at work today. God help us if we don't have sense enough to see it and seek it. And finally, we must, I hope, be willing to see some of the contemporary challenges to Christianity and to answer them straight out. I want to conclude with this thought because it has great meaning and Christians should be familiar with it. One of the greatest contemporary challenges to Christianity and to reasons for faith is the work of Ludwig Feuerbach who wrote a book called The Essence of Christianity and who is responsible for better than 70% of the criticisms of Christianity as a theological system from a psychological viewpoint. As Hume did it in philosophy, Feuerbach began in philosophy and contributed to it psychologically. Feuerbach was a student of Hegel, the great German philosopher, and most people today don't even know how to spell his name. But you go into a psychology class, and if you have an atheistic or agnostic or skeptical psychology professor, you will hear Ludwig Feuerbach. So I will restate him for you so you will recognize him because you've heard him in the marketplace as well as in the classroom. And he has a formidable argument that ought to be answered. He says, I wish for God to exist, I desire earnestly that God exists. Therefore I project my desires and my wishes and the fulfillment of my wishes is a benevolent, loving, eternal, immortal God who is going to give me love and immortality and eternity. God is no more than the fulfillment of my wishes. That's Feuerbach. And he has a system that can't be beat. Because once you grant him the premise, he moves on from there to destroy all Christian theology. The secret is not to grant him his premise. It's amazing how few people realize how at the heart of most of these arguments against Christianity there exists the logical fallacy. And that unbelievers have detected this and saved us the trouble. But the Christian hasn't done his homework and the Christian is bored by intellectual exercises most of the time and the Christian is willing to be spoon-fed rather than think himself. But actually, the answer to Feuerbach has been found in a non-Christian who summed him up and answered him completely. I was taking a course in philosophy at New York University And the professor gave us as required reading Ludwig Feuerbach because he said, here is one of the greatest minds that ever graced the world of philosophy. And he was. Here is the man who forever demolished the idea that God is a revealed being. Instead, he shows conclusively, 400 pages worth, that God emerges from the consciousness of man. I remember at the time being exposed to it and having Feuerbach stuffed down my throat and looking in vain through Christian writers for answers to it, Till finally, of all places, I found the answer to Feuerbach in another German philosopher who is called the philosopher of pessimism. His name, Eduard von Hartmann. And I'd like to let you listen to just how it was done All this great work that Feuerbach laid out and that we hear today in our schools coming from him was destroyed by this man. And most Christians don't know it. Let me quote Feuerbach. His quote von Hartmann. His one original idea, Feuerbach, is that God is only a projected desire. Now it is plain that things do not exist because we desire them. Just because I want something doesn't mean that it's going to be there. But from this it does not in the least follow logically that because we desire them, things do not exist. My longing for dawn to come after a night of pain is no proof that dawn will not arrive. Feuerbach says... My desire for God to exist is proof that God doesn't. But von Hartmann says, Oh no, I'm lying in bed in agony desiring dawn to come. By what law of logic are you going to infer that my desire for the dawn is proof that there's not going to be any dawn? That's madness the whole system rests on a logical fallacy. And Feuerbach, who prided himself on the worship of logic, is destroyed by his God. And the Christian ought to know about it. It's a good reason for faith. God is not a projected desire. God exists independently of whatever you and I might care to project. Also, Dr. C.H. McIntosh said something quite interesting about Feuerbach, and he quotes him. God, writes Feuerbach, was my first, reason my second, and man my last, and my final thought. My aim has been to change my readers from friends of God to friends of man, from believers to thinkers, from devotees to workers, from candidates for the next world to students of this one. From Christianity, whose creed makes them half animal, half angel, to men who are complete men. Close quote. MacIntosh says, and how does he manage to do it? Again, he quotes. Feuerbach, The body in its totality is my ego and my very essence. My body is my ego and my very essence. That's it. Dr. McIntosh, who died a number of years ago, a good Scotsman, with a of words, as Scotsman can sometimes do it, says. Thus we may prolong his aphoristic conclusion and say that if theology is anthropology, anthropology no less clearly is physiology. Feuerbach is a thoroughgoing sensationalist, and this has often been overlooked. What does it translate to mean for the everyday man? If my body is the totality of my ego, my very essence, I am reducing any concept of God connected with it to anthropology, which is the study of man. If I can reduce that to the study of man, the next step must follow logically that I reduce man to the study of physiology. And I end up with the fallacy of reductionism, namely that... Man is nothing but, as Feuerbach would put it, experiences or sensations, and the body is the totality of his essence. What a terrible circle to be involved in. Never to break outside, always to have everything within yourself. But a lot of people don't realize that this is the philosophy of solipsism which I mentioned the other night. The idea that the only reality is what I perceive. I would like to point out that you weaken the argument considerably for solipsism when you are talking with somebody about it. Because the moment you do, at least they exist or you're talking to yourself. So the vaunted attacks of Feuerbach really end up with a a critique that becomes for us a reason for faith. Namely, Feuerbach hasn't proven anything. He has simply brought us back to the fact that man needs an explanation. And the explanation of man is not that he is the totality of his sense experience, but that he is more than the animal, and that, as Descartes once very majestically put it, There is one thing that I know with absolute certainty. I know that I doubt. And because I know that I doubt, I know that I think. And because I know that I think, therefore I am. And I am not my body. It is not an extension of me, I am different from the form itself. No wonder that Jesus Christ could say, what shall it profit a man if he gain the entire world and lose his own soul, possession, something he has. Not lose himself, lose his soul, his spiritual nature. The transient will disappear as we decay, but the eternal continues. Finally, we're left with the people who are telling us that we must adopt the new morality and we certainly have to bow to the situation ethic. I'd like to do a whole lecture on that, but time doesn't permit it. I'll just end with this thought. Please don't think that the playboy philosophy of hedonism or pleasure or that the new morality can ever be described as anything new. The Apostle Paul described it almost 2,000 years ago. He said, eat and drink. We could add, be merry if we wanted to be Shakespearean. For tomorrow we die. The philosophy before us is, you only go through this life once, so grab on to everything you can get your hands on now. There are all kinds of exponents of this philosophy, of the numerality morality and of situation ethics. Namely, whatever situation you find yourself in, you pragmatically apply the ethic to get you out of it. There is no absolute ethic. There is no absolute morality. So situation ethics and the new morality are summed up under one word. It is called relativism. Relative truth, relative morality, relative ethics. There is no absolute God. There is no absolute morality. There is no absolute ethic. It is all relativism. So whenever you hear people talking about situation ethic and new morality, they're really talking about the philosophy of relativism. There are no absolutes. Everything is relative to the culture and the time. And the Christian must be prepared to give an answer to it. I recall one answer I saw done on television one of the few times I got a crack at it and stayed awake was William Buckley who appeared with Hugh Hefner of Playboy. I've sent for a transcript of that because it's too good to forget. Hefner was sitting there with a pipe in his hand describing the Playboy Empire and its philosophy. And Buckley was sitting there with his pad and clipboard and pencil, just apparently not paying too much attention. And after he got finished, Buckley turned to him and said, Mr. Hefner... And then the bottom fell out of Playboy in about five minutes. And the whole philosophy of relativism went into the ash can. But it was done so beautifully that Hefner was bleeding to death in front of the camera and didn't even know he had been wounded. (laughs) There are two types of apologetics, the broadsword and the rapier. With the broadsword, the head is off and the person knows it. With the rapier, it is quick and effective, and the person hardly even knows what happened until a collapse. This is what happened to Hefner, and it was magnificently done. All Buckley said was, I understand that you have a whole floor of your headquarters in Chicago which is given over solely to the population of bunnies. And Hefner said, that, yes, he said, that's quite true. He said, the girls do live on that floor. And then quickly he added, however, nowhere else is allowed on that floor. He said, there is no immorality connected with this whatsoever. He said, this is a tax-saving business arrangement. The girls come by a separate elevator and come in and out. They cannot fraternize with anybody in the clubs or anybody on the premises. And he laid it down in very plain English. So Buckley sat there looking at him, and then he smiled broadly, and he said, Ah, he said, then there is an exception. You do have an absolute, don't you? And Hefner said, what does it mean? He said, a few moments ago you told us that there was no absolute in morality or ethics and that it was a crime to restrict a person's sexual freedom. But he said, your whole floor of bunnies are restricted from enjoying their sexual liberation and your absolute is the cash register the tax exemption and the business practice you Mr. Hefner are an absolutist not a relativist Hefner looked at him for a moment put the pipe in his mouth and glared at the TV camera and then Buckley opened a pound of salt... and poured it into the already gaping wound. And he said, I understand that you have a charming daughter. And Hefner said, "Uh, Yes, he said, I have a lovely daughter. He said, "Uh, How old is she? Nineteen. And Buckley said, Tell me honestly, Mr. Hefner, would you encourage your daughter to join the bunnies and the good life of liberation. Hefner took the pipe out of his mouth, turned to Buckley and said, and it's a free quote, there was some bleeps I think too. (laughs) He said, that's the one thing I hate about my bleep bleep self. He said, that's my Puritanism coming out. He said, No, I don't want my daughter to be a bunny. He said, I don't want her to be involved in any of this. And I hate myself for that. And Buckley looked at him and said, It's all right for other men's daughters to be the object of sexual affection, but not yours. All right for you to dispense hedonism on a grand scale. All right to have a situation ethic that meets your need, but not all right for your daughter and restrictions for your bunnies. Actually, Mr. Hefner, if your philosophy works, it should be logically consistent in its relativism. She should have her bunny uniform on, and the girls on the fourth floor should be free to have any kind of sex they want. That's why the philosophy is bankrupt because instead of following it to its logical conclusion, its most avid advocates restrict themselves with limitations of their own making. The people who speak of relativism and of a situation ethic have very difficult times with a lot of very difficult problems. But the most difficult is this. In 1936... Adolf Hitler ruled Germany. And I said this on a program one night in New York City and the computer was jammed for five hours. From the beginning of the program to the end we couldn't even get a telephone call in. It was a fantastic response. because I was right in the middle of the Jewish community and I had a rabbi who was discussing it with me which didn't help matters any. And I looked at the rabbi and said you are telling us that there are no absolutes it was a Reform rabbi. But that one must decide on what is the law of God or not the law of God for oneself. Yes. I said, 1936, Germany. I am the head of the Gestapo and you are in my office. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm talking about a hypothetical case I want you to answer as a relativist. After about 10 minutes of haggling, we got to it. He said, All right, for the sake of argument, I'm there in your office and you're the head of the Gestapo. What are you proving? This. I want you to tell me on what basis I shouldn't kill you. He said, What did you say? I said, I want you to tell me on what basis I shouldn't kill you. And then the phones went wild. He said, Why? I've never heard such a ridiculous question. I said, I don't think it's ridiculous at all. Remember, we're not here, we're in Nazi Germany in 1936. You're a Jew. You're a subhuman creature. You don't deserve to exist. You're the people who betrayed us when we were fighting in the trenches against the allies. You're the people who control the power structures and the money markets. You're the people who have even defiled our pure Aryan blood by intermingling with our people. You people deserve to die. You're responsible for the economic disaster of Germany and for thousands and thousands of deaths. You're not even human beings. Well, he really got angry at that juncture. And I said, well, don't get mad at me because I'm only the head of the Gestapo. I said, that's the Nazi party line. I lived through it. So did you. I want you to tell me why I can't kill you. And he said, well, "He said why, why, the collective conscience of humanity protests such an act. I said, what collective conscience of humanity? Every culture, you say, is to decide its own ethic and its own morality. I can't superimpose the American culture and the American morality on the German culture and the German morality. What right do I have to say to a Nazi in 1936? He can't kill you. I'm a relativist. And therefore, it's got to be an open question. Well, this went on for about 10 minutes as he went from point to point and he got madder and madder and madder and finally he just shouted at the microphone, you really thought we were down there in Berlin uh, at at Gestapo headquarters. He got that angry. And he said, you can't do it because it's wrong. Oh, it's wrong for me to murder you. He said, yes, it is. I said, why? Why? You still haven't told me why. It's wrong, but Why? He just looked at me and I hate to think what was going through his mind. (laughs) And I said to him, aren't you really saying in your soul, it's wrong because God says you shall not kill. You have to go to an absolute to judge Adolf Hitler. You have to go to an absolute to judge Joseph Stalin. You have to go to an absolute if you're a relativist in order to make a moral judgment when men are exploited and murdered. And you have to do it because your relativism can't help you. You don't have any authority. And as soon as relativism abrogates authority, experience becomes authority, and when experience becomes authority, you have Dachau, Auschwitz, Ravensbrück, Buchenwald, Vorkuta, and all the rest of it. And that's why on the campuses today, when people so blithely say, and in churches and other places, well, I I actually have a relativistic view, you know, I'm for the situation ethic or the new morality. A person is really committing himself to philosophic and historical suicide. For if we applied the same standard, we could never sit in judgment on the tyrants of earth, whom we obviously have judged by destroying. If in this series we have learned this, if we have gained the truth that only in Revelation is there the establishment of an absolute that will endure throughout all time, if we have learned that miracles are real and can happen, and nothing scientific nor philosophical nor logical, from a rational mind, can disprove it. If we have learned that there are good reasons for believing in creation versus other theories, and if we have learned that the contemporary challenges to Christianity are no more successful in the end than their ancestors have been, then we will have learned that what Jesus Christ said was indeed, as always, an absolute truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. No man can know the truth unless he has made peace with God. For the answer to Pontius Pilate's question is resolved only in the person of Jesus Christ. What is truth? I am the truth. I am the life. Only God has the authority to speak this way.